every year, every month, every quarter, every season that comes along, any little opportunity for you just to put little things in place that were not there before just keeps aggregating up every year as you keep going through it. Every time something changes, the impact will be far less on you. Sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Today's episode is brought to you by Vaud Performance, the makers of the Nordboard. If you haven't checked out their website yet, I highly suggest you head over there, whether it's return to play, injury prevention, or just plain performance testing. Vaud Performance has the tools that you need. Check them out at vaudperformance.com. Today on the show, I'm joined with sleep coach and author Nick Littlehills. Nick is a world-class sleep coach to some of the biggest names in professional sports. Teams include British Cycling, Team Skies, record-breaking cyclists, top premiership and international football teams and players, rugby union and rugby league, and last and not least, Olympic and Paralympic athletes. In addition to counseling many of the world's best athletes, Nick is also the author of Sleep, The Myth of Eight Hours, The Power of Naps, and The New Plan to Recharge Your Body and Mind, a handbook, an applied guide to helping athletes and students and all people sleep better and more restfully. This is a monster of an episode and one you don't want to miss if you're trying to improve the abilities of your athletes to recover, to regenerate, and recharge between workouts, fixtures, and bouts. We discuss everything from the R90 sleep method, some of the simple and easy tips that people can immediately improve their sleep if they adopt, and just the importance of sleep and this circadian rhythms and understanding what your sleep chronotype is in determining the best times for you to go to bed. If you have any interest in making your athletes perform better, helping them to achieve greater performance excellence, and allowing them the opportunity to recover more efficiently in between training bouts, this is a show you cannot miss. So without further ado, here is my conversation with sleep coach and author, Nick Littlehales. Nick, welcome to the show. <laughs> it's great to be with you. It's a great honor to be talking to you and all your listeners, and uh, really look forward to it. Yeah, look, I, uh, I've i been a big fan of yours. I say fan that you've posted uh, via Twitter, and, and obviously the book that you've wrote, Sleep, The Myth of Eight Hours, uh, The Power of Naps, um, which has been something that I've shared with our coaching staff here. Uh, some of the materials I've shared with our student athletes, but it's just a, I am humbled to uh, to get you online today. So thank you so much for agreeing to come on the Decoding Excellence show. How are things? Uh, things are great. Um, we're just uh, trying to react because we've just uh, shifted uh, daylight saving time clocks one hour forward over over the weekend, which always causes a little bit of disruption in sport and in in. Uh, in the general population, because we're, we're now into full-on summer and the daylight's there right into the early, you know, late evenings. So we, all our habits change and everything else. So we're, we're just enjoying that at the moment. But I'm very well, but extremely busy. <laughs> uh, yeah, I can, uh, I can relate certainly on that aspect. And having us gone through our own sort of uh, shifting of times, uh, of times 
um, just the implications that that can have on performance. And, you know, when you spring forward and lose an hour of sleep, wow, it's designed maybe socioeconomically. Um, but the, the unintended consequences of that, that manifest itself in performance and, and fatigue and readiness. It's crazy. Yes. Um, I think, um, when you, when you start to look at, um, sleep, I think we mentioned it a little bit earlier on. Um, it's always been one of these natural performance enhancers, but because we just take it for granted over the years, um, people have just got away with it. So it's a very popular subject at the moment. I think um, there's a lot of people trying to jump into this window to uh, to make some money, particularly on the tech side and things like that. But uh, it's very much what's outlined in that book, Elm. It's, uh, it's more of a an educational process that's got to start with everybody um, to open up their minds to what this whole re- mental and physical recovery period is all about and how to maximize its benefits. But uh, we are literally going back to to school, you know, first class and parenting to try and get a better handle on this. You suddenly can't just jump into it uh, and become a superstar on sleep. <laughs> no, no, by by all means. And and that is uh, that's essentially the the show for today and what it, what we're going to discuss and uh, I think there's no other person better than you to, to bring on the show and, and discuss some of the, the commonalities between excellent performers that take their sleep serious to some of the simple solutions that people can do um, to optimize their sleep and their recovery. And you've outlined you know, a number of different strategies that I know we'll get into uh, a little bit later in the show from a technical standpoint, but for the audience members that might not follow you on Twitter or might not be exposed to your book, can you give them just a brief update of uh, what you're currently up to and how you found yourself in a position to write otherwise this book and provide these strategies to uh, to optimize people's sleep? Right, a little story of how I got here. <laughs> um, I think uh, you know, I've been involved with the industry for a long, long time. Um, it's up to 30 years now and I, I sort of fell into it of trying to be, you know, like a lot of young teenagers become a professional athlete in any sport I could get my hands on. So I'd already had a relationship with it, but I fell into the world of, of sleep working for a very big company. I, I rattled through their ranks to become their international sales and marketing director at 32 years of age. And it was involved with the sleep industry. So, and because it was an international company, I wandered around the world looking at all the various different sleeping habits and products and environments. Uh, I worked on the clinical side with some professors uh, and also founded the UK Sleep Council and was chairman of that for a while. And uh, My UK office was, was in Oldham, Manchester, um, and maybe a little bit of a midlife crisis sort of point, but I, I sat there and thought, you know, all this, all the information and experience that I've gathered, at the end of the day, it's having very little effect, if at all, on, on the population as a whole. So it, one or two things happened, which sparked me off to to write to the local football club, which happened to be Manchester United. I mean, the, the optimum word there is, is right, <laughs> Adam. We didn't uh, text or email in those days, you know, late 90s. <laughs> and I just, I wondered if, if sport had something going on that I could tap into and and translate that back into into my world as a sales and marketing director, and um, it started a, a conversation off with the club, 
And I think where we sit today with all our data analysis and technology and and insights into human performance, um, that was a very different world uh, back in late 98. Uh, sports science and data collection uh, and how particularly football in the UK, which would have been probably you know, of a similar nature to, to maybe NFL or NBA as sport was had a lot of things that are available to him now, which was not there. So it's the open mindedness of, of the manager, Alex Ferguson, to maybe what's coming in the future and to have a, a conversation about sleep and sleeping products. And from that particular point, you know, I decided to leave my business, to leave my job in the, in the, as a director and move on and do something else. So I was working out a contract, but, and this happened during that period of time. So my company just let me get on with this. Uh, so I had some dialogue. I worked with one of the players on a product side with lower back issues. So the first sort of sleep coaching I did was about postural care um, rather than sleep itself because they were debilitating through the hours of sleep not protecting the back it was making it worse because they got the wrong products and didn't know the correct sleeping positions and things like that so we did that that sort of opened up uh, dialogue to maybe look at other things and so i started to engage with the club and and the the media being the media um sort of found out that i was you know they've manchester united's got a sleep coach because that's how they put it together. You know, they were talking, somebody's talking to him about sleep and obviously it must be a coach. <laughs> they wouldn't say doctor. So the title arrived. Um, I wasn't actually being a sleep coach. I was just talking to players and physios and doctors and, and, re- and the manager and realizing that they knew absolutely nothing in this area. And so that's why they became interested, not because I could improve what they were already doing, they were doing nothing. <laughs> so it was kind of weird to to then start saying, well, come on, Nick, will you talk to the players? Will you do things with the players? So I had to start manufacturing what this job was about. And, you know, to shorten the story down a little bit, the, uh, the players within Manchester United, you had a very high profile period of time when they won the, the treble. So they won three competitions. Uh, the final one beating Bayern Munich in one of the finals in a very dramatic way. So there was a lot of emphasis around the team. And from that particular point, uh, a lot of those players played for the England national squad. So they started to pass on their experiences to the England national squad. That triggered off conversations within that organisation to have conversations with me. That led to other clubs being intrigued about what Manchester United or the England squad might be doing in this area. Like, we all like a bit of referral, don't we? (laughs) I wonder what they're doing over there, so maybe we can try it. So it was kind of elite sport in the very case because it was simply a set of circumstances. It just happened to be an elite football club around the world, Manchester United. You then had the elite nature of English football and the England squad And then what followed there was Arsenal and Liverpool and Chelsea uh, were all sort of tapping in to try and find out what I was up to. And we put the very first recovery room into Manchester United's training ground, which was when they were starting to double up training. Now, this was this was late 98, 2000. So this this was this was a long time ago, Adam. And 
people talk about sleep pods and recovery rooms in corporate and in sport and all sorts of things now. But back then, I was wandering around as if I was crazy. <laughs> um, but it, it was with every there were certain people um, who really had a, an insight and probably said there must be something here because it's a hell of a lot of time that we allocate every day and we principally go get upstairs, get yourself some good night, good sleep, and we'll see you in the morning and we're going to go again. And that was that was going on then. And I could I could safely say it's still going on now, Adam. Uh, there's there's in some areas been there's there hasn't been that dramatic shift to to try and raise awareness and education and i suppose the one the period of time that maybe started to elevate this area was when i started working with british cycling and team sky um and they had a particular strategy for, to go from a to b to to win tour de france's to to win gold medals uh, on track and road, male and female and Paralympic. And they were starting from scratch. So they, they developed uh, a strategy called the aggregation of marginal gains. That meant for the very first time an organization would look into not only how you wash your hands, but also maybe sleep. Why wouldn't we cover that off if it's an aggregation of marginal gains? So when I got involved with them, I was able to encapsulate my experience and my uh, from working with individual athletes and teams and my own experience of the industry is to put all that together and to become a proper sleep coach with an actual technique, which is called recovery in 90-minute cycles, so the R90 technique, to identify the seven key areas of sleep, sleep recovery, which I felt that you have to get people to this point before you start doing anything else. So the key seven areas that you look into with any individual or group, get those right, and then you can move on to stage two. So I developed that. And then the success of British Cycling and Team Sky culminated at the London 2012 Olympics. That, for the first time, had top coaches uh, actually talking on TV uh, about sleep and its effect on these marginal gains and its effect on performance and more sustainable levels of recovery. They had the performance factors to back that up. So I was part of the whole process. And that really read on to people like Michael Johnson, your very famous sprinter and uh, and also uh, a, a highly um, esteemed uh, trainer in human performance. I, I was involved with programs with him about what's making the difference, the game changes. And it's really strange because we were talking about sleep. And for the first time, they were actually talking about it in a very positive way, in a very sort of proactive way. And that's been going on over these years up until, you know, we had the same impact on, on Rio 2016 with these teams. We're already planning for the Winter Olympics uh, in Korea, and we're already planning for for Tokyo um, in 2020. And there's all these complexities that, that come across, and, and it's really great to be involved in this world. I think the one little thing to sort of end that story is that, yes, there are some significant performance factors, and you've recorded reading the book, it sort of opened your mind, but they are very simple and practical and achievable things, aren't they, Adam? We're not talking about you have to run out the door and go and buy yourself a £15,000 new bike to, to achieve these things. They're very easy.
easily easily achievable. And uh, when the lot of the work that I'm doing now to encapsulate this story is it's high on the agenda for two reasons. Why? There are some very serious health and well-being red flags around at this moment in time. And it's a consequence of shifting from the mid-late 90s where we got away with it to a world that we live in now that's only going to get more intense and more demanding. And this is why we're not coping with this now. We're actually being driven with schedules, with performance levels at an early age through mid-20s. And we're really starting to see quite a lot of red flags. And these are basically things like type 2 diabetes, weight control. You don't have to be fat and obese to be worried about weight control. You know, there's lots of people in sport who have to control their weight and it becomes more difficult. There are things like a lot of anxiety, depression, um, even getting across to more suicidal thoughts. You've got almost epidemic is a word that I get. I don't use it but other people do with with getting addicted to supplements, uh, little pouches that go under your, your lip called snuzz, to caffeine off the charts, and to things like sleeping tablets. You're not sleeping well, so what do you do? Take some tablets. And those, are, those things are used to have to be prescribed, but quite a lot of them, um, are, you don't need prescription, you just get online. So once you've actually accessed a sleeping tablet drug because it was prescribed to you, you then just buy it in quantities online. So there's been a lot of changes and a lot of those dynamics means I'm not actually talking about sleep in the book or in my job. I'm talking about mental and physical recovery versus mental and physical activity. How do you get a roadmap for an individual to get from A to B and try and do it? in a redefined way, because as you pointed out, the myth of eight hours, I've never come across anybody who gets eight hours in one block without any disturbances 365 days of the year. There's so many good things that you talked about in there. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't share that. I am going through uh, the monster of Alex Ferguson's autobiography right now. And right. I found uh, that parallels um, at least some of what is wrote in it so far is that same sort of approach that when I read Legacy and the sort of the aggregate of marginal gains in the chapters as they're talking, as they're dissecting literally every facet of performance and the smallest little uh, marginal gain and how we can improve just 1% of everything to make uh, a much larger sort of aggregate of, uh, of, of those gains into something that's substantial. Um, and that is, uh, and I know that's by no means uh, seems maybe revolutionary in, in, in what our decade here, but to hear that, you know, you're instrumental in this with the British cycling and team sky and, and this work being done in the nineties, you know, like to, to, to discuss sleep, Scary, yeah, you know, like it's scary. I, I, I think of sort of Overton's window in that, you know, people probably thought you were a lunatic back then. But now you're accepted and, and realize that this is just as instrumental of uh, a part of sport preparation as your technical, tactical skill coaches, as your fitness coaches. Uh, we have re regeneration specialists. And now, obviously, 
with the advent of, you know, elite sport sleep coaches like yourself. Yeah. And I think, you know, when you use the word lunatic, you know, you're not far off because most it, it, it was um, it was a subject that would have never cropped up. Um, it was never thought about. And for somebody to actually be opening up those conversations at an elite sport level, not not down in schools or education, but being laughed out of every meeting. But there's always somebody who looks at it and says, well, you know, there's a lot of good information. I don't know what to do with it at this moment in time or whether it will benefit me, but I'm prepared to come and walk along this route with you. Uh, so there were certain players like Ryan Giggs, who was a very famous uh, Manchester United player and played on way into his 40s. Um, and so where, there was always Alex Ferguson, Ryan Giggs. There was the physio at Arsenal Football Club, Gary Lewin, uh, Rob Swire, the physio at Manchester United latterly. Uh, Arsene Wenger, the manager of Arsenal, was, was an open-minded manager to this and, and, and wanted to start looking at better things. So it's sort of, but at that time, um, the clinical world, you know, all the great universities around the world who've been researching sleep and continually producing evidence of how important it is, but had absolutely no impact on us as a population. So why would I be able to have an impact when, when the big universities and clinics around the world had not been able to do it? They'd never spoken to them. They don't even go there because they don't know how to impact on our lives. So, yeah, um, we're, we're sort of enjoying where it is right now. But I can tell you what, for anybody who gets told by mentors or, you know, Alex Ferguson's book, which is now about leadership and business, we get all these little, you know, how long do you keep doing something without reward before you stop it? Um, when's the right time to pack it in? Are you just doing something at a particular point that just simply hasn't matured yet? Or are you a lunatic trying to make something work that will not work? So whether in business or anything, or whether you're a young athlete, if you're trying to be Usain Bolt and you're only three foot tall and you weigh 20 stone, you're going to struggle. <laughs> so I'd change, your, change your mindset uh, because that's not going to happen. So lunatic is a pretty good way to describe what I've been doing for the last 18 years up until now talking to you Adam it makes sense <laughs> yeah I just think of uh I draw parallels to our sport culture in yeah. sort of the early infancy of uh clinical sports psychologists coming on the scene and to the sort of the adverse thoughts of, you know, what, what could this person possibly provide for me? I'm a, you know, I'm an, I'm an athlete, but to actually consider the circumstances of using a tool like psychology to impact sport performance. And it's the same way with some of the work that you're doing as far as optimizing athletes sleep to help performance. And I think, you know, we all go through this evolution of being sort of viewed as an outsider or viewing as, you know, this is radical to ev eventually being accepted and, and part of the normal culture. It's a, it's a very good point, you know, because what happens, you know, right up until very, very recently, the, the sort of tech wearable app type world that was giving us data about our performance, like heart rate and things like that, while we're exercising, being healthy, or, or just day-to-day -day steps we're taking. 
So we've got that information. Then we translate it, take some of that data and translate it into how we sleep. So suddenly, we've never tracked sleep. We've never looked at it. We don't know anything about it. And then suddenly, we're getting data coming off our wearables or apps telling us about deep sleep and how long we've slept for and disturbances and all sorts of stuff. But that's like, you know, walking into a, a school and talking a foreign language. Yeah. It's like, what do I do with this information? Yeah. Uh, how do I change what's going on? Um, how do I even know? Do I want 6.25 hours sleep or 7.25 hours sleep? And I sort of go, well, I work with a single-handed round-the-world sailor and at sea for months on their own in a stripped-out boat with just a chair to sleep in, surrounded by sensors. And the sleep-wake cycle approach we take is about 20 to 26 minutes every six hours if they're lucky. <laughs> so how do you know what you're doing with this information? And so many organizations have sort of gone, you know, okay, you know, possibly, you know, what's what's the content in the book is very simple but provocative isn't it adam and you sort of you go well can't we can't we tech that can't we measure this these these results and i said to be honest with you if you just get anybody to just raise their awareness of the circadian rhythms of the day step one that reminds us that we're human beings not tech rock robots um we understand their chronotype which is their sleep characteristic, and we combine the two together. Then we think about sleeping in cycles rather than hours because that's perfectly natural to us as human beings. It's just the process that we've introduced has changed this without thought. And you go along these little steps, then you suddenly realize that turning around to a young group of athletes who were probably only just about born in the late 90s, if at all, and telling them to shut their tech down half an hour before they go to sleep, which will affect the, re which will mean that they will sleep better, is absolute rubbish. <laughs> they have to have an understanding of their relationship with blue light, how much they're getting, and particularly now here in the UK and you a couple of weeks ago, when you shift that daylight saving time, and suddenly when I'm going home at five or six o'clock at night, the sun's out, and it's going to be out until the late evening. So I need to understand these things. Yeah. Not in a really scientific way, but if I don't, I crash and burn. And I, I start doing, oh, I shut my tech down and that'll solve my sleep problem. No, it won't. Yeah. No, it won't. You know, and it, it's not to take them back to a world that they don't know anything about, you know, where there was no phones, no this, no that, no 24 hours. Okay, that's, that world's gone. But it wasn't that long ago, which is the point. It wasn't 100 years ago. It, it was actually some in many cases just one decade ago where i had nothing compared to what i've got now i'm talking to you on skype you're you're in the us i'm in nottingham we're not even being charged for the call and i can actually see you and talk to you now that's like saying how unbelievable is that and i think we just take things so for granted and i might sound like some old geezer who's out of touch but you do have to realize this is like in one decade. We've just completely used this wonderful stuff to just recreate a world that we're now going, wow. And suddenly, and a good example, I think, for all is, is stop, stop telling 
the younger generation or coaching the younger generation trying to pick on certain things that might be the cause of it. The reason why they find it more difficult to sleep at night is because schedules of the world of sport, we have the times the games are played, the times the games they finished. We bring in all the media, which adds more hours to the whole game. We've got more intensity of how many games are being played. We've got more traveling. We've got more this. And the athlete's family has got the same dynamics going on in their world. So when you look at a profile of an individual as an elite athlete, it is completely different to the one that's here today, but it's the same human being. End of story. <laughs> I think it's such a multifactorial Absolutely. challenge that we have, and it can't be isolated to the advent of commercial cell phones or uh, technology for any things. And I, I, I just love, I love the fact in your book that it wasn't tech centric, right? It is, it's, it's almost wrote to change behaviors, not have more technological uh, dependency, if you will. So when you wrote it and you said simple, but what I think if I were to replace the word, you know, simple strategies with, efficient or, um, you know, with concise, it, it changes the narrative a little bit. And that's what I loved as I was reading it is that it was practical. It was applied. It's not just in theory, in clinical settings, in the hospitals and the research lab. And I think one of the reasons if I were to, uh, um, draw maybe some success or at least sort of retrospectively look back is that, you had success likely because you applied a sort of translational approach of taking what was being conducted in the labs, but actually applying it to humans in the field, which is sometimes lost uh, on a clinical side of things. It is. It, it, it's, a, it's a very good point. And I think as, you know, whenever, whenever we sit down and um, – take an exam or we write something or we say something or we act in a particular way, whatever it is, we, we're always a little bit concerned about how others might perceive us or react to us. So when you're, you're sort of writing about, you know, your story and what you believe in and what you've experienced, you know, every now and again, I just like to make it more clinical, more academic, more professional, because I knew that Adam would be reading it or a doctor or, or, a leading professor in a university or a leading coach in the NFL or something like that. And, and you sort of think, well, how will they, how will they perceive this if I don't make it a little bit more, you know, technical, clinical, step-by-step -step kind of practice. And, but I was constantly reminded by the people around me uh, in doing it, that um, the reality is, is you're talking to these people on a day-to-day -day basis right now. And why, why they're working with you is because of that approach. So you can't change it. You can't elevate it. You don't want to tech-orientate it. Um, you, that's the way it is. So by default, anybody else who reads it would naturally respond, like all the people you work with anyway, that this is the first step you need to take in any organization before you even think about trying to measure it um, trying to develop what could be achieved uh, if 
if the level of knowledge and awareness is absolutely zero. And and I know, you know, and it's even happening today. It, it'll happen tomorrow. Um, I will be. I will be coaching, you know, a, a university in the U.S. because of their graduate surgeon program. Um, I've, I've been working with grammar schools because the schools and the education, the, the hospitals getting on, the air traffic controllers are getting on, the pilots are getting on. And I tell you what, I'm having a conversation with long-haul pilots and short-haul pilots uh, as a sleep coach and realizing that I had some impressions in my head about what this part of my life, I, tr I you know, there's certain people in our world that we really want to trust and we admire and hopefully they're doing everything they possibly can. I was just going to say surgeons, yes, as well. <laughs> and that's one of them, isn't it? Surgeons and pilots. And, it, and it's, and I'll tell you what, you know, when you look at maybe an 80-hour week for surgeons and Doctors, nurses, you know, was, was all right in the 90s, just about, maybe. It was tough. It was tough, but you just about got away with it. But you shift that 80-hour week into this world, no chance. If you take a pilot doing long haul, and then you sort of, yeah, you're in conversations where if you put another 50% pilots on at work at tomorrow, we'd still be struggling. And you go, Wow. And that's not even looking forward to when we're going to have more flights and more this and more that. And and I think, you know, in every single area, there has even pilots get such little education and so little focus from what I gather talking to pilots. I haven't studied this, Adam, but talking to pilots, talking to me in a consultative way, I realize exactly what's going on. And so I think there's... You know, the reason why, as you pointed out, the, the book had to be kept at a level is because I've got doctors buying these books, uh, GPs, practitioners buying these books and handing them out to their patients who are identifying with sleep problems on the increase. And so you've got students and young people uh, getting hold of the book and reading it and being inspired by it. Well, if that was a clinical, academic, tech-orientated, don't do this, do this, do don't do that, da 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 da, da, da it would have had no impact on anybody. So, you know, it's such a an overwhelming experience because I've been in it for such a long time, uh, and 18 years now is a long time, lots of ups and downs. It's such an overwhelming experience, even to be talking to you in this way about the subject sleep and at a level which is almost, we've got to start from scratch. You certainly, more so than I, uh, have the sort of pre-internet technology sort of understanding of what the world was like a little bit more back then. And not that, you know pre-internet and pre-connectivity, global connectivity, uh, it was the only challenge that uh, negatively affected sleep by any means during those decades. But uh, when I sit down and talk with our current student athletes, some of which are born 99, some of which are born in the 2000s that grew up with connectivity, that grew up on a smartphone or with a screen in front of them and blue light exposure and and have the sort of day-to-day -day, 
uh, sort of instant gratification of, you know, social streams and connectivity and, and the way that that can manifest in its sort of consciousness of constantly being aware and never discharging or, or setting the phone aside that, uh, you know, I, I would love, and I know this might be a little bit of uh, off track, but I would love to hear in your experience, what, what were the biggest challenges when you sat down with an organization or an athlete, you know, in your early part of your career that we maybe don't have so much of a, of a challenge now? And maybe to juxtapose that question, what's the greatest challenge nowadays that they didn't have in the 90s or 80, late 80s? Um, it's probably a pretty standard answer was to, is to how, how, how would I be able to have a conversation, never mind present, uh, to engage an individual or a group into the subject of sleep? Um, how would I be able to redefine so I can have a conversation with them? And, and you, you couldn't make things up. Because if you make things up, then it, it's still not apparent. So I just looked at it and I thought, um, possibly what I should do is I should blame the generation that's above them, that they've let them down because they knew that mental and physical recovery was going to be absolutely key. They knew that nobody was talking about in the schooling system or parents onto children and vice versa. So they've just let you wander straight into this world and now they're shouting at you because you can't sleep and use this. I suppose way back then, it was, so that's a lot sort of a little way I'm looking at it now, but way back then it was just the one thing I, in a clinical sense, um, you, can, you can track sleep uh, on a polysomnograph in a clinic, tracking brainwave patterns and you look at a 90 minute period uh, Look at the next 90 minute period some would look at 60 minutes but a lot in that profession would use 90 minutes so i just thought okay the length of a football match in the uk in the premiership is 90 minutes long so if i use 90 minute cycles so i can start to break down their schedules in 90 minute periods and i can start to think in cycles rather than hours i forget the word sleep because that just describes something in their head that I'll never be able to get rid of. I'll think of mental and physical activity and mental and physical recovery. Drop the word nap and call it a controlled recovery plea, a CRP. I'm grabbing a 20-minute CRP to really, so I don't waste time sleeping. I try to look at it as, as if this, I wasn't, maybe that the ultimate goal for this, this human race and in the future would be to, to use more than 10% of our brains to use technology and advancements to maybe get to a point where we, we can physically recover, which is probably the easy one, but mentally recover in a much shorter period of time to embrace the fact that we could live for 70, 80 years on this planet, have a fantastic sporting, healthy lifestyle right up into our late 60s, early 70s. And all that time, we've just been sleeping an hour a day. That's all. And if we could achieve that, it's like it, stop wasting valuable time to it. So all I had to do was give them the confidence 
that the last thing I was going to do was tell them to sleep for longer periods, to get to bed earlier, to sleep longer, to eat well, to exercise well, to do this, to that, because I knew that the conversation with pilots who are working rosters and shifts, with nurses and everybody who works shifts and work night shifts, they don't do it through the day. Everybody's got certain differences around the world, wherever you live, with temperatures and and cultures and all sorts of stuff that you just literally had to take something a little bit better. And and that was a significant challenge because not only were you trying to change the language of this natural everyday process, you were doing it with young people who are not so impressionable uh, than the slightly more mature group. So they've got no fear. They can all sleep on a clothesline. They actually can bust 24 hours a day. They want to achieve. They want to go. They've got high energy. Uh, they're achievers. They just want to bust it and smash it and go for it. And that's the world they live in. So to actually try and get into their world was a major challenge. And, and it was about the language you're using rather than redefining it for them. So they started to go, wow, Nick, I'm on a five-cycle routine. I've actually moved it down to a four-cycle routine, so I'm saving myself 90 minutes a day, and I feel absolutely great. Next week, I'm going to try a three-cycle routine. I'm just going to book two 90-minute cycles back-to-back at night, so it frees up the whole night. I can get more done. takes the pressure off the events. I absolutely love it. Bang one 90-minute cycling before I go into training. And then when I get home, I'm just going to put a CRP in, about 30 minutes, controlled like that, rather than falling asleep on the sofa. And then I'm going to get out there and do even more things, and I feel absolutely great. Things are just really going, you know, injury times are coming down. Uh, I'm not wasting valuable time. I don't sleep before events anymore because it's a waste of time. I do these things and they're just going and it's absolutely brilliant and I'm on it. And I really know just how much sleep I need now. And, And if I don't get as much, I don't worry about it. I've just stopped worrying about it, Nick. I just absolutely smash it. And so having somebody, did they mention sleep once? Did they mention... I'm going to bed tonight, and I'm going to sleep well tonight. No, 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 no. They sort of like, there's so much more mentally in control of this process. And when you mentioned earlier about sports psychology, I think one of those areas is to to change their mindset. And, And we all know that if you look at something scary, because the brain is continually processing what's in front of you. So if you stare long enough at something that's quite scary, and it's dark and it's sinister and suddenly your heart rate will go up you'll start to perspire you feel fear you feel uncomfortableness if you change that image to a lovely river and the mountains and the sun and the flowers and the view suddenly you become calm you you think of all those lovely things that have happened to you and are going to happen to you and things just don't impact on you in the same way. And you feel relaxed, you feel chilled, non-anxious, non-stressed. So what you're trying to do is change the visualization in their heads with what sleep means to them. Once you get across that, then you can really start working with them. And that's why you see people really performing at their very highest levels in whatever sport they are it's because you've changed the visualization of what that subject matter is in front of them rather than giving them a piece of equipment or a tool or an intervention that makes them go quicker. Actually, they are now 
the real person. This is what their real personal best is because it's been hidden by fatigue. And it's horrible. Fatigue comes on you in a, over a very slow process. So you might think this is your personal best because you're smashing it. But actually, there's another one, the other side of the room, which you've lost sight of. And this, this change in visualization, this change of what this process can do for you, suddenly you just, I think as you've said it you know, off air or before, is that suddenly you wake up in the morning and you start going, wow, I feel good. And then you start going, oh, I understand this, I understand that. So there's your performance factor, and you do not need to measure that, do you? Because you can see it. I think you mentioned about some people within your university have may, maybe engaged a little bit quicker than maybe others to this particular process. But I tell you what, the ones who are not grabbing onto this as quick as the others soon will, because they'll be 20 yards behind the others. You said two things that really, really resonate, and I think it's, it's both encapsulated in the writing that you did in your book, but more so just because it's, you know, my first exposure to your spoken word. And you said it twice in this, uh, both your last response and this response. And I just, I, if you're aware of it, if you're unaware, it's so naturally in tune to it. But one of the brilliant things, and I, I say this for the audience of coaches that might be listening to this show is that one of the brilliant things that you've done is you've changed the narrative. You changed the conversation from being what it won't be accepted within the demographic that is your audience, your your pupils, if you will, the students that you're educating. You've changed the the, the terminology from sleep, from napping, from this to, hey, we're grabbing a, a quick CRP. And I think that's brilliant from a coaching standpoint to a better deliver, package the information, the education, and deliver it to the pupil otherwise. And I think that that uh, among two of your uh, responses, while you didn't say it that way, I that that stuck out as a huge, huge uh, sort of a gem in this conversation. It it is Adam, because it, it, it's it's like you you know you're asking about you know, redefining it for the individual. But you've also, without the rest of the framework, the rest of all the, you know, whether it's teachers and professors within the schooling environment, educational environment, within a, an organization, within a team, within business world, within your own university schedule, if everybody's not um, getting engaged with change, then it doesn't have the same level of impact. So I need to to talk and be able to communicate this to, let's say, the coaches. So when the coaches are sitting down and going, okay, we've delivered, for, for the sake of this, sorry, we've delivered Nick's theories or the R90 technique into the athletes. So we know that they're aware of sleeping in cycles. We've got their circadian rhythm information, awareness of chronotypes, we understand. So when we're looking at the whole season, these are all our objectives and goals. And one thing we would like to do is, is make sure that with any any 24-hour or 48-hour period is that we want to be able to release at least five cycles, five sleep, sleep cycles to the athlete. Because we know that five 90-minute cycles equals 7.5 hours, and we know that's a good healthy percentage in any 24-hour period. What we also know is 
they're unlikely to get it all in one block. So this is what we plan for. 35 cycles in any seven days, 365 days of the year. Right. As like in everybody's world, it comes down like the next seven days in front of us because we can't control everything. So when the coach then looks at the next seven days and somebody's changed this and the timing of that event's changed, we've got injuries with certain people, all sorts of factors, and we're having to mess them around a little bit, um, like we get ill as well and have flus and viruses and little things like that. So we look at the next seven days. He looks at the schedule and goes, right, I can see 35 cycles. I can see three back-to-back 90s on that night balanced with a 30-minute there, a 20-minute early evening, as long as it's within these natural three sleep periods. I can see we're going to run under pressure there, so they won't make them sleep there, but we'll put one in there. Put them. So how many cycles have I got this week if I was doing it as a coach? And I look at it and I go, I can get 30 90-minute cycles, most of them back-to-back, but I've also balanced that with maybe you know five 20 or 90-minute ones between midday or early evening the other two natural sleep periods. So I'm comfortable with that, very comfortable. So when I deliver that schedule to the athletes, I know that's what they can do. And I can show them it's a 35 cycle week, guys, but it might be a little bit heavy on the control periods, midday and evening. So go out there and it's now down to the athlete whether they want to achieve it. And whereas prior to this conversation, Adam, you just go, here's the schedule. Recover when you can. And so it starts to re-educate, it starts to give the coach, it starts to give the doctor, the sports science people, the manager, and everybody to sort of, that they're able to redefine their approach while it's happening in front of them. They don't need to keep coming and asking me, what do we do when this happens? It's just a dynamic mental and physical recovery process that's in front of them and they don't get panicked about maybe it's a 28 cycle week because it's intense. Maybe it's going to drop down to here because it's intense. Maybe we're going to have to look at shifting our training schedules a tiny little bit because, you know, we've got so many PM chronotypes in our group that we want to be careful because we've got a hell of a lot of daytime names coming up. Yeah. Now, you just wouldn't have that conversation Um it's in very early stages now, but that's the level. So it really is suddenly they just become so much more dynamic about the conversation. And I, I can talk for Britain, can't I? I can talk for the world because it's a very passionate subject. Um, but I can tell you, you could do something within your own organization because I did it at a grammar school recently. So I had, I had 900 pupils in, in, a, in a big conference hall and they're all about 16 or 17 years of age. 15, 16, 17 years of age. And so in the, in the state, moved into full adulthood where you'd be looking at, you know, this seven and a half, eight hours type period becoming your norm or less. So there was always a danger that a lot of people in that room uh, wouldn't be able to answer this question. So I, I showed them two descriptives of a morning and a nighttime genetic chronotype. You like breakfast, you don't like breakfast. You want to get up and run around like a nut that you don't. You like staying up. So just very simple uh, characteristic descriptions. And so I asked the room, and they will have not heard of chronotypes, not heard of morning or owls or anything at all. 
anybody identifies with that. And I thought it would be really lightweight. But I tell you what, 30% of the room, their arm just shot up. No thought of thinking about it or just going, oh, I'm not quite sure. And some people didn't answer. 30% of the room, hand went straight up. You're a morning chronotype. Oh, yes. So they put their hands down. And I thought, what's going to happen now? So can I assume the rest of you are nighttime chronotypes or you don't know? And the whole of the rest of the room, the hand went straight up saying they're a nighttime chronotype. And the, the teachers and head teachers and, every, and staff who were all sat in the room at the same time, just absolutely their mouths dropped open because they suddenly realized that they, this may not be a very, very significant um, thing that's being opened up. But the fact that they know now that those pupils, over 60% of the pupils in that room, clearly identify with that characteristic. So if they're sitting in an exam at 9 a.m. in the morning, only 30% of the pupils in that exam will be morning chronotypes who are up and ready to attack this exam. The rest of them are going to take more time and struggle with it because it's not the right time of day. If they just shifted it by half an hour or shifted it by an hour or educated all of those pre-em chronotypes to get dawn wake simulators into their lives so they get woken up with natural daylight to get the serotonin levels up, that they've got daylight lamps in the actual exam room so that helping these PM chronotypes get their levels up so they can be as proactive as the morning types. And the same applies in the afternoon. You've got to help the morning chronotypes because the PM chronotypes are coming to life. And suddenly you don't have to change structure and schedules that are really difficult to change. But as soon as you become aware of it, suddenly everybody's starting to think the next opportunity we get, we're going to do this. And the next opportunity we do that, we're going to do that. And subtly the teachers, because it also affects them, started to make these little tiny changes. And, and as a result of it, maybe, you know, how many pupils pass their exams or at what level starts to creep up. You know, maybe there is less absenteeism at school. You know, all of these little factors because they become aware of it. And, they, and the, these young kids, uh, you know, starting out in life, absolutely loved it because they could see the impact I just had on their peers, their teachers, and just going, wow, we could make some changes here, couldn't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because it had helped me. Brilliant. Now, that was nothing to do with sleep, Adam. It was nothing to do with sleep. It was just a wonderful bit of awareness that that um, you know should have been around tens of decades ago you know to your point what i will say is it takes a body of then professionals to be willing to make the next step to be willing to change and whether it's organizationally or influence or handhold the facilitation of uh of those things and i think that's uh that's hard sometimes. That's scary for, for people to change what is otherwise status quo, but much needed, much needed. It is hard, but I think that's, you know, the, the point you've been emphasizing uh, along the route is that what in that particular example, what the, everybody in the room knew is that one of the first things is if they just told every parent to buy the pupil, to buy themselves the book, for example, to read the book, to impact it on family life, to impact it on their children, 
that'll bring everybody in the environment together. That will hopefully bring that pupil to the school uh, in a better way. And it's all practical stuff. They haven't got to go invest in anything. The teachers themselves get the book. They read it. I mean, like you've been described, they read it. They start to make some practical little changes in their own life. They start to bring it into the conversation in the school so they don't just talk the same way all the time. They're just going, right, we're going out to do some exercise, which is a great tech break. You know, it's a great tech break. We're going out and get a bit more. We're going to increase our blue light, get some exercise, going to control this. What they do is rather than changing the curriculum, rather than changing everything, they just can be a bit more proactive. Uh, and it becomes part of the conversation rather than not part of the conversation. Um, and so everybody gets engaged without actually having to do anything. I think that's, uh, and, and that in itself is what is needed. And it's, uh, I, I found your book to be the both most comprehensive and the most applied sort of aspects of strategies that whether you're a pilot, you're a surgeon, you're a high-performance athlete, you can begin to have that conversation, A, with yourself, and then to investigate the various key sleep recovery indicators, and then starting to find what works best for you. And like you said, it's not technologically uh, driven, necessarily. It's, it's small behavior changes that uh, that anybody could make at a very low cost, low sort of uh, expense standpoint to make meaningful, meaningful changes on their performance. So, um, and the, the book, Sleep, The Myth of Eight Hours, The Power of Naps, and the New Plan to Recharge Your Body and Mind uh, on Amazon. It's, uh, it's pretty cheap too. It's, a, it's, you know, for what one might spend on a, a latte or two, you can pick something up that will have meaningful impact for uh, ultimately, the, hopefully, the rest of your life if you take it seriously. Yeah, it never, it never stops. I think that's one of the most important things to emphasize to everybody is that, you know, once they've got that uh, awareness level up and realize there's lots of things they're doing which are actually right, but they didn't know about it. There are ways that they can just make subtle changes. They don't have to tell everybody in their world they've got to change their routines to suit them. It doesn't work like that, but you'll start finding your way through it. And and along that route, every year, every month, every quarter, every season that comes along, any little opportunity for you just to put little things in place that were not there before just keeps aggregating up. Every year, as you keep going through it, every time something changes, the impact will be far less on you. So it's not a it's not a read that book, make that change, that fit at all. It inspires you just to go looking um, for stop worrying about sleep, because that is the goal. If I can get somebody along that pathway to stop worrying about it and and, and take a different approach to it. And get more control over it and be more active with it. That is the biggest barrier to change is to stop worrying about it. So lastly, uh, Nick, where and, and, and your Twitter social or uh, your social media, Twitter handle, sports sleep coach, where what's the best way the audience can engage um, with you or find some of your materials or resources or websites? What's the best way they could reach you and find out more information about the great work that you do and the book. They could listen to your podcast, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) 
but maybe they already are. Hopefully, um, hopefully. <laughs> refer it, refer it on. I think, I think obviously the, the, the easiest thing to do is to simply come into sportsleepcoach.com. So sportsleepcoach.com. That comes directly into me and my small team and Jess who handles all our content and, and social media. And so if they had any questions, if they had any observations, or like to know anything at all, then bang that question in via the website through the contact page or you can just email us a direct at info at sportsleepcoach.com. But the one that uh, I suppose is is familiar to a lot of people is simply at SportsLeapCoach on Twitter. We have a a, a very uh, a broad range of people who we, we interact with on Twitter. We're always posting uh, good free content. We're actually in the middle of a of a, a seven days, seven tips to change your life, uh, and we're doing that this week. So they can come in via there. Um, and and gather whatever information we've got. We, we, we can operate on an international basis because a lot of the coaching and consultation services that we've got um, can be done virtually all over the world, as they are. Um, and we're expanding, you know, those services all the time. But, you know, just encourage people to, to not be frightened, to not think that they won't be able to achieve anything. You just make that first step. Get the book. If they don't like reading, then it's on an audible.com so they can listen to me talking for six hours if that, if that suits you. But they can get MP3. They can listen the book. And I, I honestly can tell everybody, because this is why you know, we're having one of these conversations, is when they read the book, it doesn't mean to say that's it. Nearly everybody who reads the book becomes inspired to sort of go, oh, my God, I've just got to get into this. I've just got to do these things now. Um, and that's because they really feel, you know, inspired to make some changes. So that's a good place to start if they get hold of it. And uh, wherever your listeners are in the world, we're up to 13 countries now. So pretty much China, Japan, Korea, Germany, Arabic, Spain, Italian, you name it, and the U.S., Germany. Um, it's actually going to be published in the U.S. in early 2018. And uh, so available on the high street. So, uh, yeah, those are the places to go. Perfect. Yeah. And I think uh, to to put a bow tie on this, while uh, uh, certainly a global reach and publications in a variety of different languages and cultures and societies, the one commonality between all of us is uh, we're human and we all need to sleep. And the importance of it, despite cultural differences is we all still need to find better ways of getting uh, uh, changing the narrative around sleep and focusing on uh, getting better, getting better sleep, uh, essentially at it. My guest today, Nick Littlehales, thank you so much for coming on the Decoding Excellence show and and sharing some of your wisdoms and your experiences. And uh, I'll make sure I include your your social media and uh, the website and your resources in the show notes here. Uh, today, but thanks again so much. I really, really appreciate the great information that you've been willing to share with the uh, the audience today. Thank you very much. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Hope you got what you want, Adam. Thank you. Until next time, take care. I want to thank my guest today, Nick Littlehales, for coming on the Decoding Excellence Show. 
I hope that you, the listener, happen to take away some actionable information from this show, things you can immediately start to apply to better improve your sleep, education that you can provide to your student-athletes for them to perform uh, in their evening routines, to optimize their recovery, their regeneration, their ability to go from bout to bout, training session to training session, and deliver an excellent performance and mastery at their performance craft. If you enjoyed any of the information shared, the guest, uh, the materials before, during, or after, please share this show on your favorite social media of choice. As always, this show originated around the idea of truly trying to distill, understand, and decode what goes into excellent performers. So like always, thank you for tuning in to the Decoding Excellence show. And until next time, thank you.